0: Good morning. Happy Valentine's Day, President's Day weekend. We need to be praying for our country, our election cycle. Last Sunday I mentioned that we're in a heated election cycle. There are debates weekly almost. Reality TV never looked so real. Watching leaders compete for the highest office in the land. But I mentioned last week, and I want to emphasize, that First Samuel, and we're looking at chapters 16 through the end of 1 Samuel 31, and... In 1 Samuel, we are seeing two leaders competing for the highest office in the land. Saul is in power. And I mentioned last week that being in power, being in office, is positional power, sometimes called organizational power. And that is a power that is coercive. I know that has kind of a negative or fault-finding association, but it has to do with the kind of power that can cause you, influence you by virtue or because of penalties or uh, the imposition of, of some something that you find harmful or uh, hurtful if you don't comply and follow that, that order. Um, policemen, law enforcement, have technically coercive power. Because if you speed and they pull you over and then you try to drive off and they capture you, then, of course, there are penalties and even perhaps incarceration in jail. But David is not in office. David has a different kind of power. He has personal power, what we could call charismatic power, or power of competence and influence. The thing to notice in this is that David's a leader without a title or a position. People follow David because he stands for something that the people need and that David represents a new way, a right way. He represents the Lord and His way. And so, the real thrust of what we want to uh, understand today is that out of our heart for God, because David has a heart for God, And out of our heart for God comes new kingship leadership. New kingship leadership. That's not David's kingship. That's not his position. That's a kingship that grows out of David's servant attitude toward the king, the Lord himself. So kingship leadership isn't so much about his kingdom, but seeking God's kingdom. And we see David's heart for God. By the way, God's power is creative power. And even though we think of coercive power as something that can be wrongly used if a person doesn't have a heart for God, But God's power is that kind of creative power that is beautiful and accomplishes things in beautiful ways that bring people together and accomplishes purposes. Well, we saw last week that if you have a heart for God, you are a leader. And that's the most important thing that I want to emphasize. That's where his kingship leadership begins to emerge in our lives, when we have a heart for God. When we follow him, we are following the leader of leaders. And this isn't talking about uh, deceiving ourselves or putting God's stamp of approval upon our own selfish desires. This is about really seeking what the Lord would have us do, In our relationships, in the workplace, in school, in all the areas of our lives. And we see this in David, who doesn't have office, in contrast with Saul, who does have office. David is not the king. Saul is. David, for example, serves the Lord. Saul serves himself. David calls himself the servant of the Lord. When he speaks to the Lord, when he seeks the Lord's counsel, he refers to himself as your servant. We saw that David protects his family. Saul threatens his family. Saul takes credit for other, what other people do. He toots his own horn at the expense of other people. He threatens his family. He pursues and even terrorizes his own family. Happy Valentine's Day, Saul. David accepts all comers. And in doing so, he develops them into people greater than they are when they come to him. He's an enabler of God's greatest good in the lives of those who follow him because he's pursuing and seeking the Lord. Saul accepts all comers too, but he uses them. He uses them toward his own interests. And when they don't serve his own interests, they're disposable, literally. And we saw this in 1 Samuel chapter 22 as well as other places. David seeks God's counsel. He depends upon God. That's the meaning of the expression the fear of God. It isn't an emotional reaction to God. It's not the fear that that emotion that makes us want to retreat or escape or take flight. It's a fear of of priority, giving first place to, giving the most important place to in your life. I know that sounds odd to us, but that's the Hebrew mindset. And truly, when you put something first, everything else takes second place. And we can relate that, not so much to the emotional side of fear, but... Also, to the notion of fear, because what you fear occupies everything in your heart and mind, and everything else takes second place. So just remove the emotion and understand the sense of priority. If you use a compass in the wilderness, and even if you don't own a compass and you've never used one, I think we all know that you want a compass because it will identify true north. Well, the fear of God identifies your, the orientation of your life to true north, which is to God. Not just when you're lost, but like David, pursuing, seeking, consulting, identifying with the Lord in all things. And he does that in seeking the Lord's counsel. But Saul manipulates that counsel. For his own interests. David represents the Lord. Saul represents himself. People see the presence, the experience, the realization. They recognize God's operation in David's life. They don't recognize that in Saul. In chapter 22, He, Saul, has the high priest and 85 priests. Only one high priest, one priest of God, escapes. He destroys their families, their livestock. It's a genocide. Saul first asks his servants to do it, but they won't. Even they recognize that that violates, that goes against what God stands for. And you couldn't find a more iconic representation than his priests. So Saul has Doeg, the Edomite, who isn't a believer in the God of Israel, the one true God. Saul has Doeg carry out that malicious massacre And David seeks God's kingdom, not his own. Saul seeks his kingdom, not God's. How do you define kingdom? Well, if we were to look at Saul's life and define that kingdom, we would think in territory and people. David, even within that territory and people, is pursuing a different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus called us to do and realize in his life what he stood for, what he brought. And in a very comparable way, David is seeking God's kingdom in his own power, his own faith and pursuit of the Lord and the Lord's heart and the Lord's will and the Lord's ways. And people see God in David. Until such time, and that really is initiated and inaugurated in 2 Samuel, when David is made king. And the first two acts of David is to establish a center of worship in the nation Israel, and that is Jerusalem. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant, which had been neglected, into Jerusalem and he dances unto the Lord." That is a beautiful picture of a man who's pursuing God with all of his heart. And that's what we can do. That's the message of David and his kind of leadership that I want us to appreciate. And that's what I want us to understand when I say when we have a heart for God, out of that heart for God comes new kingship, leadership. It's expressed out of a heart for the kingship of God in our lives. And we need someone bigger than ourselves. We need someone in our lives to whom we bow and say, I am your servant. We have those false gods and deities Many of them are man-made and culture-produced. We need someone pure and holy and good and beautiful that stands for ideals and values and virtues that transcend our human imagination and are incarnated in Jesus Christ and represented in David. Now, let me uh, just review where David is. I, uh, I pointed out to us in the past, and there's the, the Dead Sea, so that's pretty identifiable in the back of your Bible. You know a little bit about the geography of what we call the Holy Land. Uh, even in David's time, by these huge landmarks. Uh, We pointed out that when David fled Saul, because Saul was trying to kill David, he ran to Ramah, then to Nob, then to Gath, then to Adullam. We're going to be in Adullam and Hereth. He uh, took his family here for protection to Mizpah, then he came back to the stronghold, and then to Hareth, and he's in this area. And we'll be looking at Psalms that identify what David had to say in this this period of his life. David, as I said, serves the Lord. He protects his family, and his family isn't just his biological family. I want want to review that he protected so many Jonathan, the prince, the successor to Saul. David and Jonathan made a covenant, and David upheld that covenant. Every relationship, and that one shows it very clearly in 1 Samuel 20, every relationship of David's, especially a covenant, was built on the steadfast love of the Lord. That's that higher love that we are immersed in when God becomes the Lord, the king of our lives. And that characterizes the way David dealt and treated people. Abiathar, when he fled Nob after the slaughter of the priests, he found David, and David said, I will protect you. And he did, and Abiathar was with David the rest of his life. And so were many of those, the 400 that came to him at Adullam, which you saw on the the screen projected behind me. Those 400 and their families, out of those came the mighty men that were with David throughout his life and reign. That... you know, your, your values, your virtues, what you stand for, what you can provide for other people will draw people to you, but what will keep them are your character. That's what keeps them. You can attract a crowd. You can make promises. But you keep people in your life through character. You realize trust. We're celebrating Valentine's Day today. And at the heart of Valentine's Day is love. Love is built on trust. It lasts on the basis of character. Another word for that is predictability. Predictability. Do you know that person? I mean, you want the pizzazz, you want the mystery. But you want to be able to count on that person. And that's the kind of character that's built on the steadfast love of the Lord. We're here this day to worship Him who is unchanging, who is constant. And the two words that are used to characterize Him in Scripture are the word chesed, which is translated steadfast love or loyal love, and emeth, which is the word faithfulness. Those are the things that characterize the arc of David's life. Last Sunday I stopped, and this is where I want to start, and that is in the cave of Adullam. I mentioned it was a Canaanite city, When Israel moved into that territory, for all we know, it was abandoned. But near Adullam, which means refuge, there were were caves in a large mountain. Some of those could host hundreds of people. One cave, 600 and more. And it's in those caves that David finds refuge. And even in the refuge of those caves he writes psalms in which he says God you are my refuge within a physical refuge he acknowledges a greater refuge and that is the Lord God in his life I wanted us to look at Psalm 57 and Psalm 34 57 and 34 in Psalm 57 and the the title or the superscription says in the cave do you see that he begins be merciful to me O God be merciful to me he comes to God in great humility For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. David realizes that the stakes are high. And they involve his destruction. Back in 1 Samuel 20 when he met with Jonathan, he said, I am a step from death. And all of that referring to Saul's manhunt and quest to destroy David. He says in verse 2, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Again, note the humility. The recognition that he waits for God to fulfill his purposes in his life. He will sin from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out, notice this, his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Anchor your life in God's steadfast love and faithfulness. God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, because of his steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus is the embodiment His life and ministry and everything He accomplished is the definition, the the high, precise definition of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. But notice what He says in verse 4. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery... Uh, most scholars would now translate that ravenous beasts. But you could get the idea, even if you took fiery, in the sense that there's a vicious nature, uh, a vicious thirst. Ravenous beasts. The children of man is what the English Standard Version says. The word, the expression that is translated children is sons, sons of man, or sons of humanity. Uh, this is a fundamental basic, uh, you, you've, it, around me, I'm in the midst of the, the basic nature of people, and they are ravenous. They are like lions. Now, what I want us to appreciate right here is that in the cave, the 400 have come, and David sleeps uneasily. He is nervous at night because, I believe, he thinks that perhaps there's a betrayer like Doeg amongst those who have come to him which it doesn't take a stretch of imagination to imagine that. He doesn't know the 400 well at this point. And then, out of that prayer, he goes on to say, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And so he expresses where he's at with the Lord, even his precarious situation, but then he goes on, to praise and it lifts his spirit as he sets his eyes on God. Now turn over to Psalm 34. And this superscription says of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. In other words, this is the out of the aftermath of when he fled Gath, the city of Gath, and Achish, the king of Gath, the Philistine king. And again, we know he went to Adullam, 15 miles, some 15 miles away. And I want you to notice something in verse 10. He says, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then he says, come, O children, come, O children. I think almost every translation says, come, O children, or something uses the expression children, but it's the word sons, just as we saw in Psalm 57, verse 4. Come, sons. Listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, this is what I want us to appreciate. David has no title. He's not the king. But these people flock to him. Yes, many are fleeing the regime of Saul. But they come with a whole mixed bag and their own baggage, uh, but a whole mixed bag of emotions, bitterness. In fact, we saw in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2, that the distressed, the indebted, and the discontented came to to David. The distressed, the indebted, and the discontented. Those are those, the, the people who surround him and their families. And he says to them, now these are not his teaching notes, but it shows you the mindset and the heart of David. Even in these precarious times, he's being sought by Saul to be put to death. And rabble, discontented, distressed, indebted, come to him. He's seeking God's purpose for his life. But he couldn't be, in many ways, a darker situation. And in the midst of this, he isn't passive. He isn't just brooding and feeling sorry for himself. He becomes a leader because his leader is the Lord to whom he looks, whose purpose he seeks. And he says to these, let me teach you the fear of the Lord. This is his mindset. This is his heart. This is a man of influence. This is a man... Who because of what he stands for and represents, leads others. And the, the thrust, the thing we've got to get, is you can be a David, too. What would be your argument against my proposal that God is calling each of us to be a David? or a Davidess. <laughs> Isn't he calling us to be Christ-like? Jesus, the Messiah, who is sprung from the root of Jesse, who fulfills God's promise in Second Samuel 7, to establish His kingdom, His name forever, an eternal kingdom? That's David's kingdom. And yet we are all called. God's purpose for our lives is to be a Jesus-like person. And how does that affect you where you are today? When we come together, even though it's Valentine's Day, President's Weekend, we bring in with us, as we come before the Lord, we bring in with us the stuff in our lives that we haven't turned over to Him. That we we haven't sought His counsel. Or if we've heard it, we reject it. In the tiffs of our relationships. In the difficulties of our lives. In the things we fear, or the things that we're just so upset about. The things that are predominating our lives. And instead of being used of the Lord to represent him in the midst of it all, in the desert, in the badlands of life. Or maybe your life represents the worst desert or bad land ever. A life of ease and convenience and boredom and lack of purpose. If even a smidgen of what I'm describing characterizes your life, that is an area of arid, dry, desertous, uncultivated. That is the meaning of the word that we translate desert, uncultivatable. Is there an uncultivatable spot, a rocky place in your life that God can't touch? Because that's the place. That you're the king. That's the place that's your kingdom. And God can't dislodge that and bring new life and light to that area of your life. And that's the place he wants to rejuvenate. And David is a picture of that kind of rejuvenation, even in the midst of the desert, the badlands of his life. He accepts all comers, and what a difference he makes. In verse 15, David speaks of the eyes, ears, and the face of the Lord. You see that? David knows the presence and the attention of the Lord and it changes everything. In verse 19, David speaks, and this is in a song. I think this expressed his heart for the Lord, his mindset, but it's also can be understood as an expression of worship in his life, the acknowledgement of God in his life, even as he has a sense of the others in his life that are influenced by his own heart. The upright who follow the Lord, he says, are not exempt from affliction. But even in the desert of afflictions, even in the valley of the shadow of death, we have a heart for God, and it makes those afflictions meaningful. When you know the Lord as your Lord, it makes difficulties, afflictions, hardships meaningful because God not only influences and changes that situation, but he cultivates you. And that is what made David a great king. Even, he didn't wait till he got a title. He didn't wait until he was enthroned. And I don't think God wanted him on the throne until he could handle the difficulties of life so that he could lead other people in the midst of them. God is trying to do that in each of our lives. And as long as we are bent on pursuing our own kingdom and not God's, we'll not see God's leadership, a new kingship leadership in our lives. Another thing that we are to see is that David seeks counsel. I should put that back up. David seeks counsel. Saul manipulates it for his own. Turn to 1 Samuel 23, 1-5. through 5. Now they told David. Now David is with... 400, Abiathar is there, perhaps the prophet of Gad. Isn't it interesting that that David listens to the prophet of Gad? David listens to the ephod that Abiathar carries. By the way, Saul is not interested in the counsel of God. Of God. When he goes to Nob and he confronts Ahimelech before destroying the priest that I mentioned earlier. Ahimelech speaks truth to Saul, and Saul relies on the word of Doeg against the priest of God. Isn't that interesting? And he perceives a conspiracy between Ahimelech and David, which was untrue. But he perceives it because he seeks his own kingdom and not God's. And so what Ahimelech represents to him is a threat to his own kingdom, to his own life, to his own lordship. So he has Doeg slay the priests. And it says specifically, "...and 85 priests who wore the white cloth, the white cloth of the ephod, which was representative of the council of God." And you'll see David seeks God's counsel through the ephod that the priests carry. I won't have time today to explain the ephod entirely, but we'll do that at a future point. But here, in verses 1 through 5, it comes to David's attention that the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the the threshing floors so represents the people and even their means, the harvest. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, through the ephod, through the priest of that's in verse 6, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Get real. We're afraid, and we're in Judah. You want us to leave Judah and go out against the Philistines, we not only expose ourselves to the Philistines, but we expose ourselves to Saul. How much more, then, if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Verse 4, then David, what did he do? Shut up, I'm in charge. No. He inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And then verse 6 mentions that Abiathar had joined David with the ephod. So, number one, positionally, this is not David's fight. This is Saul's fight. But David sees a need and seeks the Lord because it will involve great risk. Doing the right thing involves risk. Second, personally, we see that David cares, so he inquires of the Lord. The men of David are afraid, and so David consults the Lord again, and the Lord approves, and they go and they defeat the Philistines. What do you think happened between verse 4 and verse 5? In verse 4, the men are afraid. David goes back and seeks the word of the Lord. Do You think he just said, well, the Lord said it's okay. Well, he said it was okay the first time and the men were afraid and didn't want to go. So what happened between verse four and verse five? David won them over. David stood up for the word of the Lord. David stood against the crowd. Guys, this is what we have to do, let's go. Sometimes you have to do that in the Lord, even in your own household on your own job, in your own school, with your own band of friends, even with the people that are closest to you, the people that have joined you, the people that follow you. You have to stand up for the Lord. When you know it's his word and his truth, you have to represent it. That's what makes you a leader. And we're expected to see the difference between Saul and David here between chapter 22 and 23. And it's huge. But we're also to see the difference between David as a young shepherd and David as an emerging leader. As a boy, David learned to hear God's voice and sung the words of Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. He guides me. Now as leader of others, as leader of others, David hears God's voice to govern not just David, but his people, God's people, and seeking God's kingdom. You start. You stop being a leader when you start blaming others. We're to see here not just what Saul does and what David does, but what Saul doesn't do, and listen, what David doesn't do. Give great leaders credit not only for what they do, but what they don't do. Because sometimes it is extremely significant. And you in your own life will know that when you treat people as the Lord would treat them, Sometimes you have to keep your mouth quiet. Sometimes you have to push down those raw emotions and feelings that make you want to blast somebody or become bitter or sour. That's real lordship of God in your life when you follow him. Not only in what you do, but what you don't do. Leaders with a heart for God are large-hearted and large-minded. They save face for others. That's an expression of love. What about God's love is not courteous? What about God's love is not kind? What about God's love is not generous or thoughtful? These are basic elements of civilization and concord between people, treating them with courtesy. And we think that's trivial. That's just as important a, an expression of God's love as anything else. It's love in action. Well, in seeking the face of the Lord, in seeking his counsel, in praying, in the praise of the Psalms, we see the life of David in powerful ways how he represents the Lord and his reign. Let me just uh, finish with this. Friday was President Lincoln's birthday and I'll bet you had a big celebration. I really admire President Lincoln. He was a man of many abilities, strengths, great character, but he was also known as a man of prayer and devotion to God. His mother, Nancy, modeled her faith and discipled young Abraham. From Dennis Hanks, and you don't know Dennis Hanks. Dennis Hanks was a neighbor of the Lincolns and their log cabin. Dennis Hanks was in the house the day that Nancy Lincoln died. She was suffering from milk poisoning, and it was a slow, painful death. In the house, he reported, his experience in the house, he reported in a letter, and we have that letter. And this is some of what he writes about young Abraham at nine years of age, and what his mother Nancy said to him. She knew she was going to die and called up the children to her dying side and told them to be good and kind to their father, to one another and to the world, expressing a hope that they might live as they had been taught to live, to love, to reverence, and worship God. Finally, the desperately sick Nancy, spoke directly to her young son, Abraham's only nine, and she said these words, I am going away from you, Abraham, and I shall not return. I know that you will be a good boy, that you will be kind to your sister Sarah and to your father. I want you to live as I have taught you and to love your heavenly father. Biographer Elton Trueblood wrote that Lincoln never forgot his mother's words. And among the other things that he reports, he says, "...the evidence of Abraham Lincoln's own practice of personal prayer is so abundant that no thoughtful person can deny it. He prayed alone. He called the nation to prayer. He prayed for guidance. He prayed in gratitude. He prayed in defeat. He prayed in victory." And even his disposition of reverence was noted when he was in the presence of others that prayed and those who prayed aloud. When his own son Willie died, which was tragic for the first family, he said to the nurse, I have a, I've had a good Christian mother. She taught me. And her prayers continue with me to this day. She discipled him to love God. She discipled him to pray and to love others and to love the Lord God. And it showed up in his life, in his character, and in his leadership. Are you known as a person of prayer? Are you discipling others? Do you disciple your, if you're married, your husband? Do you disciple your wife if you're married? Do you, if you're in a relationship, do you disciple the partner in your relationship? Do you disciple your children? Do you disciple people? Are you deliberate and conscientious as a leader that you represent a new kingship leadership that the world desperately needs where you are each and every hour and place of your life, even in refuge, even in a cave, even in a desert place. Will you stand with me? Your heart for God is a precious commodity of the kingdom of God. Nurture it in the power of the Spirit and become the person that, even as David prayed, waits upon God's purposes, lives for Him, serves Him, not just in the delectable times, but in the desert times. I'm going to pray for us. If God's spoken to your heart this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to know Him. He'll change your life for eternity. If this morning God has put his finger on an uncultivatable place in your heart, and you need to bring that to him so you can experience the joy, the rejuvenation, the beauty of the Lord in your life in that area, I'm going to be up here. Others will be with me. After I pray for us and say amen, we're going to be here. Come and pray. Bring that to the Lord. Let me close. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the Davids in your word, the Davids in our lives, and the Davids that we can become in Jesus Christ. Through the power of your Spirit, give us a new outlook on our world and our place in it and your purpose for us in this place that is not our home, but that we treasure because it is the world that you have made and you have put us here to make it a different place, a better world. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.